Amen to that. Our God, who is amazing in his love, is also the God who saves. And uh, that's the centerpiece of our, of our ministry, of our mission, of our focus, of our message. And um, I trust that you are understanding the gravity of the time we're in, the week that we're in, the opportunities that are available to us to freely proclaim the gospel and to make sure that message gets out. We need you to help us to, to get that message uh, into our community, into our region. So please take every opportunity that you have to pick up a card or a few cards and get them to your neighbors, your coworkers, get some tickets out there, and let's make sure that um, we do what we can to make sure the uh, message of the gospel is, is being made available to people. People will say yes, and I want to I just give you, a, I've, I've had a preview of, of this, the story, and it is epic, I, and I wouldn't say that to you lightly, but this, this is one of those opportunities and one of the, these um, artistic presentations of the truth about God and about his saving work that is truly an, an epic event. And um, for, for instance, for people who don't know anything about the gospel, uh, you can be assured that they won't be dropping in here into the middle of the story and left wondering, what is this Easter thing about? I really don't understand. This starts at the very beginning and helps us to understand the reason why Christ had to come in the first place. So it takes us on that journey. So it's an amazing opportunity to take someone you know who doesn't know anything, perhaps, about the message, about gospel, about the Lord, what he's done, and will help them to understand what our great God has done from the very beginning right through this journey. So it's an amazing opportunity for lost people or people in our culture who have no, um, uh, basically most of them have no memory, no consciousness uh, of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're, we're living in those kind of days. But then for those of you who love the Lord, it's one of those great events of worship and praise and, and an opportunity for you to uh, invest your time in just um, offering your life to the Lord and, and, and worshiping and praising him for all that he has done for us and, and how amazing his love is for us that he would come, Christ would come and die for us that we might be saved and have a relationship with him. So uh, it, it's for everybody and um, I, I really would encourage you to put whatever extra effort is necessary to, to be here and to bring people with you. It will be a, a life-transforming time because God, uh, God, will bless, uh, God will bless his work. Well, let's, uh, let's pray before we uh, look into God's word. Our Father, I thank you for this time now to open up your word and um, to continue in our time of worship by worshiping you through lives that submit to you and honor what you say to us and, and um, seek to put our lives before you um, by way of, of uh, searching, Lord, search and see if there be any wicked ways in us. Lord, this is, a, this is an important time of consecration in our lives, this holy week that's set before us, that God's people might be readied, uh, their hearts, our hearts might be right and pure before you, Lord, that, that um, you can work among us, that you would choose to work among us and choose to bless among us, Lord. I pray that we would be blessable, not for our own sakes, but for your great glory's sake. That, that we are greedy for your glory, Lord, and hungry for it to, to happen in this region. So I pray that you would um, loosen all the ties that bind us to other things that are not necessary, not important uh, to, the, to the central focus of, of our attention this week. And that is to, to see that people uh, come to know our Lord Jesus 
um, to know him is to, is to have salvation forever. And Lord, I, I ask that you would cause our hearts to be inclined to respond to your word with um, a yielded heart. Uh, I pray, Father, that we would soak in everything you have to say to us and, and that it would, be, um, cha- it would be transforming in our own lives. You, you have um, important things to tell us, to prepare us for, to perhaps um, uh, equip us in, for future days or, or, or weeks or however for, farther along uh, the application of this text might be. So, Lord, you, um, you know your timing. You, you, you're the, the master of that. You're the one who, who purposes our lives. And we, we've come before you in this moment for a very specific reason that you've drawn us. And I pray that that would be revealed to us as we attentively pay attention to the Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would say to you this morning that if you have any convictions at all, and I think I'm speaking to a a, a group of people who are known for convictions, if you have any convictions at all, and and you market those convictions in the uh, environments that you live in, you will spend uh, some of the time in the penthouse and some of the time in the outhouse, or... Uh, or sometime in people's good books and sometime in people's bad books. That, that's the way it's going to work uh, around people of conviction. And this morning, before we look into Nehemiah 6, I want to uh, tip off the application uh, to you by suggesting that, that this section th- this morning is about uh, um, having influence and impact and standing for something and believing in something and being passionate about something and, and the likelihood that you will be attacked for that. The likelihood that you will, um, that you will face uh, possibly smear campaigns or dirty politics or, or uh, people will try to distract you from the good things that God wants to do in your life and, and steer you and focus you in some other direction. And um, I know by now you're feeling a little bit exhausted by the fact that it's relentless, like kind of week after week. When does the opposition stop? Well, I don't want to discourage you too much, but never. It doesn't. We, we are in a battle. We are in a battle for the, for the gospel of Christ, and, and we're, we're in a battle for our souls, and God is going to win that battle. I mean, we are more than conquerors through Christ who, who gave himself for us, and we're in the victory side and all of that, but it doesn't change the fact that we're in an ongoing battle opposing. And, and as we're going to dig in the text this morning, the timing uh, of the particular situation, where they, were, they, they had filled up all the gaps of the wall, and now they were about to hang the door. So, so we're, we're at this point in time where the enemy starts to become very anxious. And um, depending on where you're at in your own particular scenario with Christ, and the fact that he's been mobilizing our hearts over these last uh, weeks and months about upgrading our spiritual commitment to the Lord, uh, depending on, on how well God is doing that in your life and how much you're cooperating with him, the, the intensity knob is going to turn up. That's not meant to discourage you, by the way, because we're, we're, we know that we serve the living God who's going to help us win this thing, and we're going to show you how that, how that works out, but, but it would be wrong for me to skip over sections where God is warning you and helping you and, and telling you in advance. I can't tell you how many times in the Word of God it says, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things, my brothers and my sisters. God wants us to be fully informed of His truth. He wants us to know the way things are so that our lives can, can line up with His. 
And of course, this is Palm Sunday. Uh, and and uh, here's my little Palm Sunday sermon. The little sermon out in front of the sermon. Because as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and everybody was, Oh, Jesus, Hosanna, come save us now and all this. And waving palm. They were all excited about Jesus showing up because they were anticipating a message that they wanted to hear. And the message that they wanted to hear is that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem and he was going to beat up all the Romans and, and he was going to give them all big houses and two cars and, and boats and trailers and cottages and they were going to live happily ever after. And that's all they were interested in. They were interested in their particular physical setting. And for the most part, the people who are rejecting or thinking about your invitations and wondering whether they should have anything to do with Easter and all of that, that's all they're really interested in as well. They just want to have a nice life, a happy wife, and, and a couple of cars and a few kids, and kids all, all not bothering them or hassling them, and they want to have money in their bank account. They just want to have health, and they want to have everything physically good right now. It's all they care about. They have no interest in the fact that their souls are desperately wounded and broken and on a pathway to destruction. And they think they want all of that uh, until something a little bit tough happens in their lives. And so it was, as Jesus rode into town, they were all excited about a message they were hoping he was going to tell them and, and activities that they hoped he was going to do, but the crowd turned very quickly on Jesus, as we all know. Within a week, he, less than a week, he was on a cross. Because that's not the message he came to bring. He came to bring the message of renovation of heart. That your heart might be rich. That your soul might be wealthy. That you might have an eternal inheritance. That you might not be citizens of this world. But that you might long for your citizenship in heaven. And the truth is, the more that you act like Jesus, the more you'll be treated like him. The more you bring that message, the more opposition you will face. So what does the text say? I want to read uh, nine verses with you this morning. When you are closing the gaps of loyal distinctiveness to Christ and about to hang the doors to shut out evil's easy access, you should expect to be in the crosshairs of hostile opposition. Don't be surprised by this. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, note that, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat set, sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have been appointed, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. 
Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. This is God's word to us this morning. When, you, um, when you've got the uh, gaps, when you've got gaps in your, um, your spiritual wall, the enemy kind of leaves you alone. You don't seem to get a lot of hassle. But as soon as God touches your heart and you start to upgrade your, your spiritual commitment, and passion for the Lord, then when uh, often the, uh, the attack comes and regularly. Um, and so I, I want to talk to you about four things to watch out of this whole chapter. But to do, today we're only going to deal with two. Uh, we'll deal with the other two, Lord willing, after Easter. I just want to talk to you about two things today from, from verses 1 to 9, because there's four in total. Because after Easter I'm going to come back to more opposition. I'm going to say, are, are you serious? I mean, I, I, you're coming back to opposition again? Yeah, I'm coming back. I'm warning you after Easter we've got to come back for a couple more. So just so you know that. Uh, that's what's going to happen. But, but just two today because it's all you can handle. Uh, it's all I can handle. And, and the first one is this in the first five verses. Um, you know, by the way, I've got I to make a disclaimer um, before I even embark upon the, 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 the guts of the sermon here and just simply say this to you and you'll find out why I'm saying this when we get through into the sermon. I got no ax to grind today. You understand? I, I want you to know that as I stand here on the platform because... Because a text like this can get very personal, and it can seem like, hey, what, has a pastor got some burr, burr in his saddle or something? Is he upset? Is, is he mad at us? Or have people been harassing him or all that kind of stuff? And I want, you, I want to categorically say to you, no, it's, it's fine. At least it was fine this morning. I, I never know because our lives change very momentarily. But, but no, everything's fine. Everything's good. I'm not... I'm not on a soapbox, on some personal quest to, to, to release myself from anything. No, that's not it at all. In fact, this is the perfect timing for me to preach this text. I, I've got nothing. Um, you know, I don't want you to be thinking, you know, he's, he's mad because the Leafs won last night or something. He's just taking it out on us. And, and, um, and um, that's not it at all. Okay, well, I am a little bit ticked off about that. But, but that's, that's not what's going on in my life. And, and um, you know... Uh, you know, congratulations, Leaf Nation. It's not going to happen again very soon, so relax on that. You know, God has such a sense of humor. This morning in the first service, right there where Tim Wagner's sitting, right there dead center in the, in the, in the, uh, on the balcony, is a guy with a big Leaf sweater on. I'm like, oh, come on. This is just getting me more and more angry. But anyway, it's, a, it's, it's a God's sense of humor. And I, I got to thinking, God was probably torn last night about what he should do. I mean, because on the one hand, God is a God of justice. And we all know that the Bruins completely dominated the game, and so he wanted to give it to them. But on the other hand, in the leaf net is this great Christian kid, James Reimer. So what is God to do? And, and I'm even torn there. I'm like, well, I love James. He's a Christian and all that. So I'm kind of happy that James won the game. So that's where I'm at. It's like, hey, Christian won the game. Big deal. Good for him. Good for him. But that's all my generosity and grace will give. Okay, there's this, tempting, there's this tempting distraction. Here's Nehemiah on his wall. 
The work is going, the gaps are filled, and along comes this invitation. Hey, Nehemiah, you know, been working so hard. Hey, how about a little golf retreat up in Ono, you know, a little secluded place there. Just, you, just Sam Ballot, Tobiah, you know, just the big guys around here. You know, it's time. Hey, it looks like you're going to be here for a while. You're going to be in the neighborhood, and, and uh, if you're going to be in the neighborhood, and, and we're the heads around you, we're the leaders all around you, I, I, why don't we have like a conference? That'd be a great idea. Let's have a conference, and, and you know what? We can do it in Ono. In the village. Now, you know, you've got to do a little bit of digging, but, but you find out that Ono is halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria. And when you stop to think about that, you're thinking, hmm, we're going to have a little gathering, and you're going to meet us where? Halfway. You start to think, hmm, he thinks there's something smelly about this. Let's meet here in this private place and talk over next steps, uh, how, we should, um, how we should be good neighbors with each other and, and, and how we need to get along and, and what, what will work for both of us. How can, how can we make this a workable situation for both of us? I know what you believe and we, we believe this and all of that and we got to live in the same neighborhood. So, so me thinks that it would be a good time for us to talk tolerance. It would be a great time to take time from the great task that you're about. And by the way, this tolerance is the relentless strategy day after day messaging both you and your children. That's the culture we live in. In fact, the Canadian context is very proud of the fact that we are a very tolerant society. In fact, that's the marks of civilization. That's the mark of or being very civilized. That's the marks of being very sophisticated. That's the marks of being a mature society. How much we can give and take. How much we can get along. And the simple fact is from the other side of things, the Sanballats, the Tobias, the Geshems of the world, who virtually have no serious, passionate convictions, that, that when you don't really believe anything, making room for everything makes sense. Well, why don't you come over, why don't you come by, Nehemiah, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, we'll give a little bit, you give a little bit, it'll be fine. A man like Nehemiah can't, can't give anything. Can't give anything of his convictions. Because they're convictions. They're passionate convictions. They matter to him. Because they matter to God. So what's he to do? I, I want you to know that um, selling the idea to us, uh, around us, is, is that... That, that people simply want the same thing. They just want peace and happiness and, and to get along. And, 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 and yes, we have different viewpoints. And yes, we have different religious takes on all the things. But, but really, it's all amounting to the same thing. We're all really heading for the same thing. So what's the big deal? And, and all of us in here would be quite all right with that if, if it wasn't Jesus who we were serving. Because, see, Jesus made it very exclusive. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus uh, established the, 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 the operation agenda. Jesus, the rules of engagement have been already established by Jesus Christ. He's not 
the ultimate negotiator saying, here, we'll give a little bit of this so that everybody can, everybody can give a little bit. And after all, it's all going to work out all right in the end and we'll all, we'll all enjoy having it together. Tolerance, by the way, is code for compromise. Make room for me, in other words, for whatever I want. Today, tolerance means rewriting all the former standards of morality. Let's make it clear that the church has always tolerated unbelief. It's a fact. But now we're being asked to endorse immorality under the word tolerance. Tolerance requires compromise, and the casualty to compromise every time is truth. In fact, what um, I think these guys were saying to Nehemiah is, how, do you, how distinct do you really intend to be? I mean, you're building these walls, and you're going to close in these doors. What, what does that really mean for us? And what does that really mean about what we believe? Just, just, how, just how distinctive, Nehemiah, do you intend to be? Not only that, I, I think they're, um, they're asking a subtle question of Nehemiah. Perhaps, Nehemiah, there are some non-essentials in your repertoire in terms of God. Why don't you just give those away? The subtle pressures, by the way, that happen even internally to us. Methinks me hears the voice of the serpent. Did God really say? You don't, you don't really, Nehemiah, you don't really believe that, um, that if we don't obey God as you understand him to be from the Holy Scriptures, you, you don't really believe that, that we'll die, do you? God didn't really mean that. Let me tell you something about truth, at least about God's truth. I, I want to share with you kind of three pillars that should fashion your understanding of truth and how it functions in your life and in the life of your family. Particularly in this context we live in that is insisting upon pushing the ideas of tolerance and compromise. Number one, truth is never contradictory. God's truth is never contradictory. It can never mean opposite things. It, when, when God says something is sin, it never isn't sin, just because it's in another cultural context. Or, or just because the calendar has changed and it's now 2013. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but these are important realities for us as we try to navigate against everything that's pushing us to compromise. Secondly, God's word means what God meant it to mean, regardless of what you think it means. Now, I know that seems really obvious, but let me just, let me just role play here for a second. In the office, in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, with your neighbors, even with, with lost family members, the, the, the usual comment is, well, that's just what you think it means. That's what you think we're supposed to live like. 
I, I, I know the Bible too, but, but that's just your opinion of the Bible. Well, there's nothing absolutely wrong with that statement. And people throw it in our face all the time. But what we want to say back to them is, well, that may very well be so, but listen to me carefully. What God means it to mean is what it means. And what that means is, we better make sure we know exactly what God wants us to know. And what God means by what he wants us. So, in other words, it is imperative for us to have convictions and passion and to make sure what we're saying God means, he actually means. And then finally, the third, and there are more, but for those who want to uh, turn interpretation of the scriptures into an O.J. Simpson defense strategy, which is convoluted craziness, what God said or seemed to say or the text plainly states is regularly what the text means. Now, I've been to school. I've been to higher learning. I've read some books. I understand there's language and there's context and there's genre and there's grammar and sometimes literal isn't what's meant. But when that's the case, it's very obvious in the Word of God. So, for me, these three things should formulate our understanding of where we are wavering into the murky world of compromise with the things that matter in life. That is God's truth. I want you to also know that something you need to know about the seduction of tolerance. Tolerance is never about peace. It's a tool to dilute your passion for what is right. To turn passion into passivity that the opposition can use to gain momentum. I think Nehemiah hits the nail on the head in verse 2 when he says, they were scheming to harm me. This was not a good project for Nehemiah. Oh, you need a vacation. You need a rest. Let's go up to a retreat center. That wasn't what it was about. And tolerance is not about peaceful coexistence. Tolerance is an attempt to get you to no longer passionately believe what your convictions believe. It's a one-sided attempt to gain another opinion as the public opinion. Compromise is always a lure to create a no-way-back scenario. You get away to, oh, no, and soon you are saying, oh, no. You know, I'd like to think that I was an original thinker. I, I always like to think I'm an original thinker. So I'm preparing this thing, you know, and I'm reading that thing, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I got a punchline for the congregation. I'm going to use the oh, no thing, you know, because it's there. Like, it's a, wow. It couldn't be a better village called Ono. You know, we're talking about compromise, tolerance. You get there, it's like, oh, no. We ain't going to Ono. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of all kinds of great things. And so I, I'm, I'm jotting this down thinking, ah, this is going to be great. And um, then I decide to read some books on Nehemiah, and like virtually everyone, I'm serious, virtually everyone who's commentating on Nehemiah uses the same punchline. I'm like, oh, great. Thank you very much. 
So I just had to throw it out there in case you were reading a book saying, he kind of acted like it was his funny thing and it really wasn't. I did originally think of it. That's all I'm saying. We need to know the terms and values of the, the, in the landscape, or the, the values of the landscape of tolerance all around us. Understand this, that human rights are a higher value than God's moral standards. When we're trying to understand getting along and, and how we navigate, how we, how, we, how we live in this culture and all of that, that's an important understanding for us, that human rights are a greater value to our culture than God's standards. I don't know if any of you were uh, interested this week, but uh, Hillary Clinton uh, came out on the, the news, and, um, and now she's uh, championing um, a gay marriage. Allegedly, she says, it has nothing to do with votes or anything about her running for president, but, but we all know that's what it is. But, but anyway, she allegedly states it's, the fact is it's because it's a human rights issue. And I find a, a remarkable irony in all of this. Who is it that is the ultimate champion of human rights? Isn't it our great God? I mean, I mean if, if anything, this Easter message tells us, it tells us that our God cares so much about people that he would send his one and only son to die, that people could be saved, that people could be brought into his family and live with him forever. I mean, God is the ultimate. Jesus Christ, if, if, his, if his life teaches us anything, as recorded in the scriptures, that he's the ultimate champion of human rights in the sense of what's good for humans. Unfortunately, humanism long ago raced past theism. God's not even in the story. So let me talk to you about this, take a couple of takeaways in this section, and we, we move on. I notice what Nehemiah does, and four, four times relentlessly they come to him and invite him. You ever had four invitations? One is tough. Try four. Same message, same invitation. Turns them down. How does he turn them down? He says here, I can't come. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. He stays focused on what God has given him to do. There are lots of invitations to all kinds of societies and people who are thinking about going in this, some direction or, 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 or choosing to champion some cause over here or some cause over there. I mean, the invitations that you get, the invitations I get are, are, are endless. Come and help us here. Come and do this. Come and get involved in that. Nehemiah at, was, was fervently aware that God had given him a project. God had given him an assignment. God had given him a task. And he wasn't going to be dissuaded from that. And so he stayed on task. Stayed focused on his God-given priorities. Some sneaky stuff just, is just a setup to rob you from God's best stuff. Know what God wants you to do and learn to say no. Distractions fight against focus needed to be all in. And so Satan will use distractions. Even 
good-sounding distractions. Know your call and diligently stick, stick to it. For all you who have ADD, this is a tough call to stay focused on what God wants you to do. But stay focused. I'm not released from what God has given me to do. And secondly, I notice he didn't publicly speculate on their plot. We read it in the text. He says, I, I know they meant to harm me. But he doesn't say to them, you just want to harm me. He, he doesn't speculate on their plot. And I think that's very significantly strategic for us. Let's be careful what we say. And here I'm among friends. I can talk to you straight about tolerance and compromise and all that kind of stuff. But when we're out there, don't necessarily assume that everything that's coming your way is some sort of filthy, dirty, satanic plot. And then call people that. It can result in minimizing your opportunities to speak to them again. Build bridges. And it will provoke smear campaigns. If you rebuff someone who, in fact, does have your worst interest in, at heart, they will take it to the next level. And in spite of the fact that uh, Nehemiah was very gentle with them, we find out their intentions as we move into the second issue here. You'll notice that uh, the fifth time they show up, he sends, Senbalat sends an aide. He sends an aide with uh, the same message. Come and talk to us. And in his hand, it says here, an unsealed letter. I want to call this section dirty politics. Dirty politics. The unsealed letter. What's the problem with an unsealed letter? Anybody know? What's the point of the seal? Hmm? can't hear you. You all need a mic. If, I hear, if, if anybody said out there, the point of a sealed letter is confidentiality, you're starting to hit the nail on the head. Shows up with an unsealed letter and says, oh, by the way, you better come to our conference. Oh, and here's a letter, which he looks at as unsealed. It's a scathing report allegedly stating that he has a plot in mind. They're building the walls to create war. They're, they're planning, he's planning to have himself coronated as king. And he's put all kinds of prophets in, in place to uh, manipulate the word of God. Now would you like to come to our conference, our little golf outing up in Ono? See the twist? Because when it's an open letter... You have to wonder in your heart, how many people have read this already? I got a bigger problem on my hands than what I thought I had. It is reported, it says in the letter. And oh, by the way, Geshem is corroborating it. Geshem the Arab. <laughs> you know, this is kind of um, interesting. I always kind of break out in hives when I hear these kinds of words. Pastor, it is reported. People are saying. I'm like, well, who? Well, I don't know. It's just, it's out there. And by the way, Geshem says it's true. Like, Geshem? Geshem the Arab, like he's my best buddy, like he's reading my mail, like he knows anything about me. Oh, if Geshem says it's true, it must be true. It's like, but nevertheless, the letter's out there now. 
So what do you do with this? The strain of having to fight rumors and innuendos. Let me just um, mention something to you when people write something and press send to all. The damaging effects and dirty intentions of an unsealed or opened letter, a letter to everybody, using mischievous words, even if they're untrue, can dog a good, upright person for a long, long time. Just walk into a crowd and say something like this to a guy. So when did you stop beating your wife? The thing about this is, the most plausible rumors are the ones that catch fire and can ruin excellent intentions. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, consider what the whole Jerusalem project looked like. Building walls, putting up big doors, some highfalutin cupbearer shows up from Susa in Persia and starts to lead everybody. Everybody's really excited about this new leader. Nehemiah can do it. If anybody can do it, Nehemiah can do it. Kind of looks like Jerusalem may be setting themselves up for battle, maybe setting themselves up for independence. And it looks like maybe Nehemiah is putting himself at the top. And he has enough influence now to, um, to impact the uh, prophets to rewrite the word of God if he wants them to. So maybe this is true. How do you get rid of rumors and innuendos that seem plausible? Have you ever had this happen to you? Baseless public accusations fabricated from the dirty places of those with a plot mentality absolutely drain the strength right out of your life. Do you see what Nehemiah says in verse 8? Verse 9? They were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. If you've ever faced this, it's like a hard kick in the stomach. It takes the air out of you for a long time. Your arms lose their strength, your legs lose their strength, and you just feel like collapsing. Especially when you know that nothing that is being said is true. It's completely baseless. In fact, it, it hurts all the more when you realize it's just the opposite. I mean, we've already encountered about Nehemiah's life, how he lived his life, how, how much integrity he had, how careful he was with his finances, and all of that kind of stuff to make sure that he didn't put a burden on people. And then this horrible letter shows up. What's he to do with that? When you've been trying to give yourself to loving people and serving people, and all they turn around and do is, is send this back in return. So that you don't lose your balance, you have to keep in mind it was just one person writing one nasty thing. But nevertheless, it, it takes the wind out of your sails. 
Beloved, listen, if you have something to say that is critical to your brother or your sister, or you have some sort of suspicion about what's going on, don't turn it into gossip. I'm always amazed at how easily church people abandon and break the ninth commandment. This is one of our worst things. I mean, you get the first few commandments, but it's like, it's like we didn't read all ten. It's, it seems to me like in the average evangelical church, we've read like the first eight commandments. Well, I wouldn't murder anybody. Are you kidding me? I'm a Christian. I'm not going to commit adultery. God wouldn't like that. Well, idols, I'm not going to bow down to any idols. What kind of God-fearing man would do that? And then we stop reading the, the commandments. What's the, what's the ninth commandment? Exodus 20, 16. Thou shalt not... I'm going to use King James language because we always think it's more authoritative. You know, if I use it in the NASB or the NIV, we're like, well, you know, maybe a good idea. But, but if I use King James language, it's going to be okay. So, thou shalt not bear... Oh, so you do know the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do you think God cares any less about that than he cares about you shall not murder? You shall not commit adultery? You shall not bow down to any idols? Do you think he cares any less about that one? Is that not exactly what this was all about? Well, if the commandment doesn't convince you, what about Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16? There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, uh, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Wow. I would say to you that an unsigned letter and an unsealed open send-to-all letter should be 100% disregarded. They are attempts to damage and are simply dirty politics, which is why they are used in the first place. Okay, let's wind this up with some takeaways from this number two thing here. Let me say this to you. I think these are important. If you haven't talked to the person privately about your concern before going public, you can no, have no other reason than an attack agenda in mind. I don't see any, I don't see any other way to explain that. It's clearly a contravention to the word of God. If you have something against your brother, what are you supposed to do? Sister, go to them privately. Share with them. It may eventually have to go public if they rebuff you over and over again. You're supposed to take another person, they rebuff you, go, and then it may become public in the church. But quite honestly, this kind of dirty politics goes on in churches all the time. Not our church, of course, but other churches. More damage is done in church business meetings because we don't pay attention to this principle. In fact, most Christian journals constantly joke about church business meetings. Because someone gets up and says something public, 
without ever thinking of going privately, first of all, to see if this is so. Secondly, uh, an open or unsigned letter should be put in a file folder titled, Never and Not Ever. Go ahead, write your venom if you want to, but put it in a file folder called Never, Not Ever. I'm never sending this. It's never going anywhere. I, um, I have lived through watching this happen. Again, not here, and I'm serious, not here. I have lived through watching this happen, and church momentum sagged. A good leader had to go away who did nothing wrong. And the sorry final days of suspicious stony hearts never recovered. All because of an open letter that was tell-all, clear the air, supposedly. Unfounded impressions. None of it true. So that brings me to um, my third point in terms of takeaways. As much as is possible, and I'm giving this as advice to all of us, keep a witness close to you, close to your cause, your closet, your character, and your capers. A few years back, not here, I was part of a smear campaign. I became the brunt of a smear campaign over alleged things I had done, which were pretty nasty. The nice thing is, by God's providence, and I had no way of knowing this, but by God's providence, I happened to have a deacon with me on every single one of the alleged occasions who was there to corroborate nothing like what you are claiming is even close to the truth. And so in terms of how we function and operate, it's just common wisdom. Operate by yourself very sparingly. Let people in on your life. Make sure witnesses are close to your cause, your closet, your character, your good capers. Fourthly, if you're above reproach, say so. What's Nehemiah say here? He says in verse 8, nothing like what you are saying has happened at all. You're just making it up out of your own mind. Don't feel like you don't have, to, you, 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 you don't have the right to, to say something. If you're above reproach, say so. Although, can I quickly say on the heels of that, most of the time you probably shouldn't say anything. Jesus rarely, I can't even remember, I can't even come up with a, uh, occasion when Jesus defended himself. And that brings me to my, my final observation. In light of that, what did Nehemiah do? He said, look, I, I get it. You're trying to frighten us. You're trying to harm us and all of that stuff. He goes to God. And he asks God to strengthen him. Let me just say that the last thing is simply this. If uh, Ultimately... Christian workers, Christian people have to rely on the vindication and mercy of Almighty God who always knows the truth and has an endless arsenal of ways to frustrate the cause of opposition. You know, when it's all is said and done, we can't possibly protect ourselves or keep ourselves from slander, defaming things or all that people want to say to us or say about us. We can't possibly take care of that. Listen, 
What, what is it that got us here this morning? What is it that got us this far in the journey with God anyway? It was his grace. God has brought us into his family. God is watching over us. And ultimately, no matter what we do, no matter how many defenses, no matter how, many, how, much, how much care we take with all of this kind of thing, the bottom line is, if God doesn't look after us, we're going down. And so Nehemiah could simply say, listen, I know what they're trying. I know what the scheme is. They're trying to harm us. I know they're trying to frighten us. It's really demoralizing to hear people suggest this about me and all of that. But listen, let me just say this to you. God will fight for us. Trust God. He will strengthen us. He will look after us. He will put interference in the way of the opposition in the most amazing ways. So if you're out there and people are after you, People are saying things about you that are baseless and not true. It's impossible for you to come up with enough defense strategies. Believe me, it is. But God will watch over you and God will vindicate the truth. Because that's who God is. They were scheming to harm us. They were trying to frighten us. But I prayed, now strengthen our hands. So Lord, what I think he meant by that is... Get my focus and everybody else's focus off the detractors, the dirty politics. And let's get our f eyes fixed back on the project, the task, the great task that you've given us to do. Let's get our hearts and our minds back on Easter and our focus and reaching lost people in this community. And you strengthen our hands, God. You vindicate our cause because you know the truth. We stand before you. You know of our life, our integrity, our reputation, and our insurance. And I'm not saying anything about insurance. Our insurance ultimately is in God's hands, always. Our Father, I pray this morning as we uh, wrap this up that you would uh, help us to soak in these thoughts, think about them, hear from you, as we um, contextualize them in our lives. Father, I've already heard uh, from the first service, there are people, they're exactly engaged in these kind of things right now. They're, they're under attack. And um, Lord, so you, you always suit and fit your word in terms of application to our individual scenarios. Thank you for that. And I pray that God's people will be strengthened and encouraged to know that you see our cause, you know the truth, and you will accomplish your purposes in our lives for your glory. So thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.